All right, good morning, friends. Hope you guys are well. Let's uh, flip over to 1 Corinthians 14. As you're turning there, I have an announcement also. Um, there's a couple in our gathering. Uh, we're not going to share too many details uh, where one of the spouses has some pretty substantial dementia. And so there's been some ladies that have been helping them out, and they're asking uh, for some help. And my note says it's not for the faint-hearted. Um, and there's obviously more details if you're interested. But if you're interested in the, uh, uh, the, that kind of a ministry, um, helping out in an environment like that, please uh, see myself, Dana, or Mavis, and we'll kind of fill you in on the, more of the details about it. And uh, we can go from there. So it's a pretty substantial need, I would say, in my own opinion. Um, so we'd appreciate any help we could get. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now, if you remember, we're going to go through this very briefly. The whole point of Corinthians is what? Not resting on our own wisdom. There's a wisdom that comes from the fallen nature, from this world and from Satan, and it is self-preservation, making sure I'm taken care of, right? Making sure that I'm always the one who comes out on top, that I'm always the winner. And then there's another wisdom that comes from Christ, that comes through the Holy Spirit, that is, as Jesus puts it, if we seek to save our life, we will lose it. If we lay down our life for his sake, then we'll find it. The more that we give to Christ, the more that we lay down our life, the more we allow God to work, the greater and more fuller our life becomes. So as we know, uh, and, and tuck this away, we'll actually bring it up again, that Paul is writing a letter here that's a response letter, right? We know from chapter 1 that Chloe, someone who, a woman of means who has a household, she writes to Paul and sa or sends a message to Paul somehow. We assume it's writing and says there's all these problems in our church. And so Paul is writing back to her, or writing back to the Corinthian church and addressing these issues. Why do we keep bringing that up? Because you can see that these are very personal and pointed things that are happening in a church that Paul's addressing, right? Now, through, uh, when we started chapter 11, that began a section from now until chapter 15, or I should say at the end of chapter 14, that is specifically how to deal with things in worship, how a worship service works. And we started with head coverings and, and he started in uh, different things like that, the Lord's Supper, uh, different ways that people interact where we are to, essentially, there's times where we curb our liberties so that others can be, essentially, it can be easier for others to get to Jesus. That's what it's, the whole thing is about, right? It's that it's loving one another, that laying down of my life. The examples he also gives, remember, it's meat sacrifice to idols. And he makes the point that if a, a, a Jew gets saved and they're, they're not yet, you know, because they've been taught for 30 years that they, you never eat meat sacrifice to idols. But then they put their trust in Christ. They receive that forgiveness. And they, yet they're not, they're not yet ready to get you know, to say, well, okay, I guess it's okay if I eat that meat. He says in that example, it's not okay for that person who he says has the weaker faith to look at somebody who does eat and say, wow, you're wrong, you, you, know, you, you shouldn't be doing that, How, you know, that kind of thing. But he also says that the person who's going to eat the meat without any conscience, and they're more than welcome to do that, it's wrong for them to look at the person who just can't go there and to say, and to despise them, to disesteem them, dishonor them, to have no value or lesser value for them. So that really encompasses everything that he's been talking about. And so we got to the spiritual gifts, and Paul's making the same argument, right? He's saying, look, spiritual gifts are always to be exercised from a place of love. We might even go so far to say that spiritual gifts are always for other people. Do they, do they bless us? Yeah. Do, will, they, will they cause growth in our life? Yes. But they're to be exercised not at a place of personal glory or personal contentment, but to be exercised in the will of God for the people of God in his house, right? In the house of God, his trio, sounds better. So that's, that's essentially what he's talking about. And that can be difficult for us, and, you know, depending on our backgrounds, because of spiritual giftings uh, and what they mean and how they work. And so last week and the last couple of weeks, we just looked at the fact that God says every single person, anyone who has called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, has spiritual giftings, and those giftings are to be specifically exercised in the church. Not just necessarily the building, right? We're not talking about the building. We're talking about the ecclesia. That's the Greek word that we translate into English as church, and probably a bad pronouncement of it. But it's the idea that it's a called-out gathering of God's people. 
So every time, in any place, in any number, when God's people get together, that's where we are called to be using, as we're prompted by the Spirit, our spiritual gifts, but it's always for the building up of the other person. Never for me so I can feel better about myself, I can feel like I've contributed, I can feel like I'm valid. You know, the, you know what happens if we look in, for our identity or our validity in our spiritual giftings? If we don't use them, we feel useless, we, feel, we can feel neglected, we can blame other people for it. We go to some really weird places that, that we're not called to because we are not our spiritual gifts. Remember, he sums up uh, in the second half there of chapter 14, he sums up and he says, or I'm sorry, the second half of 13, where he says, look, prophecy and tongues and the partial understanding that we have, they're going away. Prophecy will be no more someday. It will literally cease. It will stop. Tongues will cease. They'll stop, right? Partial knowledge will stop. So all these things that we're using now that God's called us to use to build up his church, they're not going to be necessary in heaven because he tells us as, as Christ knows us, we will know him and we'll know one another. Our knowledge will be completely full of seemingly everything that has to do with the kingdom, if not more. I, I, don't, I wouldn't dare to speculate on that. So all those tools, if you will, I don't want to be crass about it, those tools that we have as gifts, they're to be used now and they're to be used for others. So in the second half of chapter 14, what Paul's going to go into is essentially the practically working out of a church gathering and how it works. Now you'll notice that this church gathering and how he describes it is different from ours and really from probably almost, I would say, 90 to 95% of church gatherings in America. And we'll talk about that. But let me say ahead of time, when we talk about that, we're not going to trash the church in America. Uh, if I can just have a soapbox for a second, it gets really old when pseudo-spiritual people keep talking about how lame the church in America is or how lame the church in Italy is or how lame the church in this country or that church. Oh, they're so lame. You know, that's a tired argument because the church has always sucked. Like literally day one, they were like, hey, we're saved. And then what's the first issue? A racial issue where, where people that were getting saved, the ones who weren't actually Jews, start getting neglected in the offering and giving of food. Like the church has always been dysfunctional. Can you imagine if two people died for lying to their pastor in a church meeting? That happens like month two, right? I mean, my point is this. Well, this isn't going to be a comparison today, say, because there's, there's this kind of this ideology where they go, you see people's, their eyes, where they kind of roll back in their head and they go, oh, the first century church. Oh, God was moving and the spirit was just being poured out and now we're just commercialism. That's weak. We're doing the best we can, right? And we're seeking the Lord together. So we're not going there today. We're not here to criticize the church. We're just to say, this is how it worked then. This is how it's working now. And we can, we can choose to change that or we can not. But we want to honor Christ in everything we're doing, right? And not try to say it was better, it was this, or it was that. It's always been dysfunctional. And that's the incredible thing about the church that it's always been dysfunctional, and yet God has sustained it in all its weirdness, in all its brokenness, in all the society that has snuck into it, has sustained it and used it. It's, it's the glory of God. I mean, it's, it's the credit to this incredible creator that could have just beamed Jesus down every Sunday morning, syndicated to every church on the planet, but instead he says, oh, I'm going to use a bunch of broken people to have my spirit, and they'll encourage each other. It's incredible. It's an incredibly wonderful thing. So here we'll jump into chapter 14 in the, the second half in verse 26. And I, I wanna, I'm going to point out some verses as we read. And I don't know if you're an underliner or if you're a highlighter or if you're a no whatever, but it, uh, a mental noter. But just take note to some of these because they're going to become really important when we get down into uh, verse 34. So verse 26, he says this. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? Now, forgive me for the repetitive. This is the word brothers and sisters. Some of your Bibles might say brothers. Some of it may say brethren. Why am I drawing attention to this again? This is important. This is the, literally the Greek word that is for brothers and sisters. Right? Just like we might say, I saw all the folks. It's just a generic term for everybody that we saw. This is specifically men and women of the faith. Okay? 
He says, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you, every individual, has a hymn or a word of instruction or a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, excuse me, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Now, depending on your tradition and how you got raised up, that might sound a little bit offensive. That might sound a little bit different. So we'll work through this and we'll talk about it. Number one, he makes a point that when you get together, who? The church, the ecclesia, us. He says, when you get together, each one of you, brothers and sisters, you have a hymn, you have a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. So he's just generically laying out, uh, laying out some of these gifts, this, these ideas. So he's making the point that when we get together, every single person has something to contribute. We'll talk more about that because you might go, well, that's not really what we do on Sunday mornings. And there is a, an element of truth to that. And we'll talk about why. But he makes the point that we all get to do that. Each of us gets to do that, meaning every single individual. And he, and he lists it out. A hymn a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church must be built up. So I want to lay out a few things to keep in mind for, for these, really for the whole chapter, but for this idea. So I wrote down a list. So these are the, the letters that we have in the Bible and some dates when they were written. Okay? You go, James, you beat this horse, but just roll with me for a second. Okay? This is estimated, pretty much universally scholars agree, that 1 Corinthians was written sometime between late 56 AD and early 57 AD. Okay? So, in that time previously, what letters do we have in the Bible? James, the letter from James, the early estimates are 44 to 49. The latest estimate is 50 AD. So they would have had the, the, the letter from James would have been circulating through the church for five years now. Remember, even though it's circulating, it still takes papyrus and ink, which are very expensive. In fact, the, 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 the middle class, what little middle class there was, which was very small, wouldn't be able to afford that. That would be like a family treasure. And so the, 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 the vast majority of people, uh, especially in Rome, 50 to 60 percent of Rome uh, and a lot of these cities dwell in squalor and in poverty, right? Their, their daily goal is literally to get enough calories, and most of them are failing at it. So they're not going to have papyrus and ink to scribe these things. They're not going to write it down. So your hope is that maybe somebody at your church, uh, we know a lot of the churches were people that had means. They were, they remember, you have Lydia and these different people that are, that are listed off. Uh, Gaius is one that had churches in their homes. So they may have had money for papyrus and these things because they actually had homes instead of uh, small apartments and these type of things, which were very common in Rome. It's kind of wild. They literally had five-story apartment buildings in Rome in the first century. So Galatians, the estimated date is 49 to 50 A.D. The, the latest date is 55 A.D. The others, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, are somewhere between 51 and 53 A.D. So people argue about what dates they are. The Gospels, the earliest, they have no idea. And the estimates are 50 to 60 A.D. Most scholars believe that Mark was written in 66 A.D. and Matthew was 67 A.D. What's my point? My point is, at this time, when this is written, they probably don't have any Gospels like we do, right? Because John's Gospel wasn't written until uh, significantly later, decades later, uh, and then Luke's uh, is, is, is also decades later, right? Because Luke does all this uh, research and all these things, so it takes decades for them to, to write these Gospels. So the Corinthians, they don't have the Gospels, most likely. They have probably three other letters, four other letters. They have the, the letters, to, if they've been circulated, to their church which seems like they probably would have been. We're not talking about a huge area, right? We're talking about uh, around Israel and the Middle East, so in, in, you know, up into Turkey and these kind of different areas. So you're talking about a maximum of a couple hundred miles from Jerusalem by this point. Does that make sense? And, and Paul is journeying to those areas, and so he, maybe he gets copies. So we're not trying to say we know exactly what happened. We're just trying to make the point that in their early church service, there's no buildings yet, right? We do know that the, the, they met in a rented upper room where there's 120 people on the day of Pentecost. But that's not normal. 
Church buildings don't come until the, the first mention in history of church buildings is 250-ish A.D. So it's not like this. They don't meet like we do. You might recall it says in, in Acts, how do they meet? They meet house to house, eating their meals together with thanksgiving, that nobody counted anything as their own. Right? You have this real communal type of living that's going on, and people are, are giving to one another, and that's how they minister. So when the, the church at Jerusalem gets together, it's, it's 3,000 people, right? 3,000 people at Jerusalem get saved, and, if, and then some, some time later, multiple thousands more get saved. So it's not like they went and got, built the Crystal Cathedral and got a, a, you know, a mega church with one pastor and then, and then had this incredible worship program. It wasn't like that. You're literally talking about church meetings, typically with 15, 20 people probably. That they're just multiple families are just getting together. And guess what they're not getting together with? The Bible. Because they don't have it. They have itinerant teachers. In fact, we'll see in 1 Corinthians 16, one of the things Paul says, he says, once you guys take an offering, I'll get some brothers, I'll, make, I'll give them letters of recommendation, and then I'll send them to Jerusalem so that when they get to Jerusalem, Jerusalem will know they're legit because I've put my certification on them. And we know from church history that that was normally how it worked, that essentially you had like people like John discipled people, right? And John disciples them, and he gives them letters of recommendation, and they can take those letters that are signed by John, and they go to the churches, and they teach at those churches. And they, 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 give, they read letters at those churches. That's how the Irish church meeting goes. The letter, remember, we're, we're covering this, and that's my fault, over the course of months, right? Because we're trying to look at these things and understand what they mean. This would have just been stood up and read, Right? They would just, they'd be like, here's our letter from Paul. All right, let's do this. And they would read it. And maybe there'd be commentary over the weeks when they said, oh, Paul said this, Paul said that. And here's how, what he says about this. And oh, remember you guys are all getting liquored at the Lord's Supper? Well, he says you should stop. Right? So this, that's, it was a letter to them. Right? So it's with that kind of knowledge and that kind of understanding where Paul says, hey, when you get together, this is how it works. And the first thing that he's noting here is, is that, that there's going to be prophecy. There's going to be revelation. There's going to be the Spirit working in individuals, and they're going to share stuff. And, he, and he's going to give more note about how that goes down later. But in this case, he's talking about the, the, the gift of tongues. Remember, we looked at the gift of tongues in the first half of chapter 12 and 14, and the whole gist of it is this. He says, in fact, he quotes, uh, if you were here last week, this quote that he makes from Isaiah, when Isaiah says, well, God says through Isaiah to, to Israel, he says, I'm going to speak to you in other tongues so you won't understand me. So you're like, well, that's kind of weird. What Paul does is he uses the example that tongues in the Old Testament was a representation of foreign nations coming and dominating Israel for their disobedience. So he says about the speaking in tongues here, the reason he makes a comparison, because he's saying that if you speak in tongues in a public gathering and there's no interpreter, it's useless to everybody else who's around you. It's of no benefit to them. And he says, see, look, they are speaking in foreign tongues. God did that, and it was no benefit to them because they had disobeyed him to such an extent. And it was a testimony against them. So he's saying, you don't want, you don't want to do that in your church. He says, you always have an interpreter. So he's reiterating that, and he's giving practical instruction for in a church meeting. He says, when you get together, you can all contribute. You all have these things. And he says, it must be done. Everything must be done, at the end of verse 26, so that the church be lifted up. So this is, this is the real theme right here of this entire section. Everything that we do must be done so that the church is built up. We have no other motivation. You know, the, 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 if you're a, a sharer of the scriptures, if you're a, a tongue speaker, if you're an interpreter, or whatever, whatever gifting you have, it is not for you alone. And to, to exercise one of our gifts in a manner to gratify ourselves is morally wrong because that sends us to weird places. So then he's going to give some practicality about it. Now, I want, let me back up. Does it benefit you? Yes. And he says that, right? He says, look, if you speak in tongues, your mind isn't encouraged at all, but your spirit is. And from the people that I've known that have had that gift, that's what they'll say. I don't know what I'm saying, but I know that I'm so encouraged afterwards that it's just been this, this time of praise. It's incredible. And it's what he said. He says, the spirit's built up. So he says here, in a gathering, if anyone speaks in a tongue, verse 27, two or at the most three. So Paul, writing back to Corinth, says that if you're in a gathering with a church, in a church meeting, and someone speaks in a tongue, there's at the maximum three, and that's, and that's when you stop. But he's going to go on to say, one at a time, 
So here, I want to say this. I am not picking on hyper-Pentecostal churches. I want you guys to know that. I've been to churches where everybody's speaking tongues at the same time, and I thought, wow, this is not really my deal, but that's cool. You know, what, do what you got to do. Like, I'm not, I'm not here to measure that. But the, the, I think what Paul's saying here, he's making an order because he's saying, look, if everyone's just speaking in a tongue and no one's interpreting, you might feel the heebie-jeebies, you might feel things, but nobody else is being lifted up. Does that make sense? Nobody else is being edified. In fact, in his example, he says, everybody, unbelievers will come in and say, you're crazy. This is craziness. So he says two, maybe three, and he says one at a time, and then he says someone must interpret. Verse 28, if there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Now this has been interpreted different ways. It's been interpreted with the idea that that there should be knowledge of an interpreter ahead of time. In other words, you're like, oh, that's Bob the interpreter. Cool. I got a tongue this morning. Let's do this thing, right? Or it could be that you share your first one, and it's just quiet, and we go, okay, that was cool. We're done now because there's no interpreter. But Paul's making the point that if someone shares a tongue, then there has to be an interpreter. If there is not someone who says, hey, this is what that means, right, then he says you stop talking. Now, we can also relate back to the, in the beginning there of, of when he's kind of talking about idols versus, versus Jesus and the Holy Spirit there in, in the beginning of chapter 12. He says, no one by the Spirit will say Jesus is a curse. So the idea is that no one sharing a tongue or a spiritual gift or an interpretation is going to say, and Jesus, well, he's just kind of okay, but Judaism is where it's at. He says, if someone says that, they're not speaking from the Spirit. They're speaking from a different spirit, not a good one. But that's not the Holy Spirit that led them to do that, and it wasn't, it wasn't something that was from God. So I think it's important. We're not trying to limit people of the Pentecostal persuasion, all right? I, I hope none of us measure a Pentecostal church or measure the speaking in tongues or anything like that as somehow wanting or wrong, because it's not. I, I actually have long admired, this is a side note, you know, I, I, I personally... As a reserved person, I find it difficult to, like, jump around or do something like that. But someone who's so amped for Jesus that they want to do, like, a cartwheel or wave a flag, I say, God bless you for that. I wish I had the freedom. I would just feel weird if I did that. I'd feel like a fake if I did that. But if someone else is doing that and a whole church is doing that and they're so amped up that they want to wave a Jesus flag, hey, God bless them in that. Honestly. Who would we be to be like, hey, put the flag down? (laughs) This is serious business. We're worshiping Jesus now. Shh. Right? That's crazy. We would be the weird ones then. So he's just saying this is how it works. Simply because the whole purpose of the speaking in tongues in a corporate gathering is to bring worship and glory to God. That's all he's saying. So if there's no interpreter for that, he doesn't say stop speaking in tongues. He says talk to yourself and talk to God. So that's really important, right? He's not trying to impede people from speaking in tongues. And sometimes you'll be in gathering, worship gatherings, and you yourself, or you might stand next to somebody, and they'll have their arms raised, and they're, and they're speaking. You're like, I don't understand what they're saying. They're speaking in tongues, and that's fine. He's going to end the chapter by saying, do not forbid people to speak in tongues. Don't do that. So it's, there's a time and a place, and there's an edification to it, and it's a gift. Remember last week where Paul says, I wish you all spoke in tongues. I wish everybody had that spiritual connection uh, that they were able to let go of their intellect, let go of their just mindfulness, and just have a spiritual experience with God. To me, this may make me immature, and I don't mean that insincerely. I mean, I'm probably an idiot, but it's just, I don't ever feel that freedom. I've waited on the Lord before. I'm like, I want to speak in tongues. And I've been like, nah, that's too weird. I'm good. You know? <laughs> so I, I admire people that have I really do. I just, I'm a freak, so I apologize for my life. But the... Uh, you know, the, the, the thing is, is that it's, it's, there's a time and a place, but the emphasis is everything that we do, every gift that we are part of and we exercise is for others, to make sure that other people around us are lifted up. And if we're not able to contribute that, he says, go ahead and pray to yourself and pray to God. God's blessed by it. But it's, it's, if, he, if there's no interpreter, it's, it's not to be continued. Verse 29. Now he's going to talk about prophecies. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what, he, what is said. 
And if a, uh, if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy or prophecy in turn so that everyone may be instructed or encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of prophets. But God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregation of the Lord's people. So now he's going to talk about prophecy. And he says here the same thing. Two or three should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. This has deep roots in oral tradition. If you're not aware, vast portions, all of it actually, the Torah for centuries wasn't maintained with writing. It was maintained by oral tradition. That might scare us, right? Because if you've read a pamphlet from some you know, high school teacher at some point uh, that, that basically tried to say, oh, oral tradition is like telephone, right? You guys remember, anybody ever been in a youth group where everybody played that game telephone where somebody whispers something in somebody's ear and then it goes around a circle in the end. Somebody was like, you know, I love green cheese. And like, no, that's not what I said, you know? And everybody goes, hee, 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 right? Because it's different. And then what, what essentially, and I'm not trying to be rude. I'm really not. It's essentially what usually what antagonistic, ignorant people do is they say, oh, oral tradition is such garbage. It's just like, it, it's just like a, a game of telephone. That's actually the exact opposite of what oral tradition is. It, oral tradition was something that was exercised by different cultures, but specifically the Jews, and it was, in a, it was observed, it was tested, there were consequences. So when you recited part of the Torah, when you recited part of Genesis, or all of Genesis, you did that in front of like tens, if not twenties or hundreds of people that knew it also. It's one of the reasons why in young Jewish men, it was, it was I don't want to say normal, it was often that young Jewish men in schools would be taught the, to memorize the entire Torah. Remember, they don't have cell phones. They don't have Facebook. They don't have radios. They don't have TV. They don't have computers. They don't have scrolls, a lot of them. So they don't have all these things that we have that take our attention. I'm not, I'm not here to poo-poo entertainment. I'm just saying you literally have your farming and sitting in a chair. That's what you have every day. And so to practice and to consider and to memorize these things, it was of great value because they were considered the words of God. So when oral tradition was exercised, it was exercised in such a manner where if you said something wrong, there might be 10 other guys that stood up and were like, no, that's not what that's, that's you're wrong. And then you were done. <laughs> you basically got like a, like a naughty timeout from oral tradition. And you would have to restudy it until you could come back and be able to present in front of humans again. So oral tradition is a really important thing. So drawing from oral tradition in this idea, remember we created or, or tried to create an understanding of where things are at. He says that the, the other people that are there, other people that have this gifting of prophecy or other people that are familiar, that they listen carefully. They weigh it. They weigh carefully what they're hearing. So it wasn't just that somebody willy-nilly stood up and just said whatever they want. People were like, ah, cool. It'd be weighed against the four other letters that they may have had or read. It'd be weighed against maybe from testimony who could have come, Luke or Mark or Peter, any of these guys that could have come through Corinthians, the, the, the Corinthian church at some point and shared with them. It would be weighed. Was this, is this congruent with what John said? Is this congruent with what Apollo said? Is this congruent with what this person, that person said? So it wasn't just that people stood up and were like, blah, 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 blah. And everybody's like, oh, it sounds good to me is that every prophecy was met with reverence. Every prophecy was met with consideration. This is a huge investment for everybody, isn't it? That this was something that was weighed out and considered and these type of things. Is it congruent with what we've already been taught and told? And that's something that's re reiterated for us in the letters, right? And, and Paul says in, in Galatians 1, when he's writing to the Galatians, he says, look, he says, if we or an angel, the apostles himself or an angel ever come back to you and give you a different gospel than Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected from the dead for the whole forgiveness of sins, he says, let that person be anathema, literally go to hell, let them be cursed forever. So it, he, was, he was very stout on, you know, we keep to these things. These things are important and, and, and um, uh, that we hold to the things that we know. And he reiterates that over and over again. 
So in this case, in a practical meeting, two or three prophets speak, the others weigh carefully. Verse 30, if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. Just think about that for a second. You know, you, you roll out to the, the, you know, the Goldstein's house or whatever, and you're sitting down, there's 15, 20 of you, and you're, you're listening, and you're speaking a prophecy, and then someone else says, hey, God's given me revelation. Guess what you get to do? Sit down. Isn't that wild? How many of us would be like, yeah, I'm not done with mine. <laughs> and frankly, mine's probably better. We don't like to be told to sit down, do we? I'll tell you a story one time. When I was a young man, this has no relevance for anything. When I was a young man, I was probably 23 or 24. And when I got saved, I got saved when I was 16, and I was just a kind of a wild kid in a lot of ways. And a real jerk and, and had to work through a lot of things and, and just really mouthy and a lot of things. It was bad. It was a bad scene. And it was patient, firm pastors that helped me kind of mitigate and understand what was actually valuable. So I went to a church for 11 years where two or three prophets did, as it were. And uh, it was incredible, actually. It was amazing. Because typically how it would work is uh, for a, young, a younger brother would stand up and share for about 10 minutes. And then he would sit down. And then uh, uh, somebody with some maturity, typically like one of the deacons or somebody, one of those guys, they would stand up and they would share for about 20 minutes. And then lastly, one of the, the four elders, they, one of them would stand up and share for about 30 minutes. Every Sunday, it worked that way. And um, I would say the vast majority of Sundays, it was all, always congruent. So it would be a very similar idea that was shared from the same place. But it was random, meaning every single man in the gathering got ready to teach Sunday. Every single one of them. And then we just waited on the Lord, and somebody would stand up and say, hey, I think I have a word from the Lord. And they would share and one time, because I was kind of a proud idiot, still am, but may hopefully a little less, the, I went to stand up, and one of the elders was like, sit down, James. And so, of course, I was like, this is from the Lord, and I love you for that. No, I was pretty much ready to be like, I will fight you in this church, right? But I just sat down because I thought better. And uh, when I came later on, they talked to me, and they're like, they're like, hey, uh, we asked you to sit down because we don't think you're ready yet to share. I think I was trying to stand up like for a second or something like that. And they were like, oh, we don't think you're ready for that yet. And it was, I was enraged. And so that's why I needed to be sat down because I was full of pride. And, and, it, and it was something that legitimately over time, <laughs> not in the moment, changed my life. And there's something to be said in God's house, where God says, you have to be humble if you're going to share a prophecy. You have to realize that you're nothing. And then if God gifts you and it gives you an ability to share with people, to realize that it's God's gift alone and there's no merit for you in it. And so when you look at some of these things, these would not fly in our society. I'm not saying it should be that way. That would not fly in our society. That someone stands up and is sharing something, somebody else says, oh, hey, hey, actually, God's given me a revelation about that. Why don't you go ahead and take a seat? And then a third person says, oh, hey, hey, oh, wait a minute. I think God's given me something about that. Why don't you go ahead and take a seat? And then everybody graciously says, cool. The will of the Lord be done, and then takes a seat. That's what he's describing here. I mean, this is an incredible, incredible thing. You think about the squabbles and the fights that happen in churches today. I mean, it can be about food or coffee or worship or drums or a djembe or no djembe or the cajon or what. I mean, it can be the seats. Do the seats match this? Are the seats comfortable? Are they not comfortable enough? Is it, what about this music? Or what beat? I don't even know about it. What rhythm of the beat? Where is it at? Oh, that's of Satan because it's on the whatever beat. And I mean, just think about all those things. That, that wasn't even, there wasn't any opportunity. And that's what he's writing to Corinth. He's saying, look, you guys, you think you're something and you're not. Instead, what we're called to do is humble ourselves in everything that we do. We do it to make sure that the people around us are built up in Christ. That's our pure motivation when the church gets together. Yes, we want to be encouraged. Yes, there's an opportunity to consider these things uh, and, and, and to be built up in ourselves. Absolutely. But that's not the attitude we come in with. 
the attitude we come in with is that, hey, I'm, I'm ready. I'm just here to bless people, whatever that means. If that's a hug, if it's a high five, if it's a how you doing, if it's a word of prophecy. And I, I, this is why I want to be careful about those statements here, because he says, each one of you, each one of you. Over and over again, he makes the point that women pray and prophesy. Verse nine, we'll, we'll skip down real quick. Verse 39, therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Verse 31, for you, call, uh, for you can all prophesy. Verse 26, each one of you has a hymn or a word of instruction or revelation, a tongue or interpretation, right? Chapter 11 and verse 5 to women, put a head covering on when you pray and prophesy. So there's an idea here that all people have the ability to contribute to God's people, every single person, okay? And, and it's important to consider, especially when we get into some, some verses soon, um, but that we each have a chance to gather. So why don't we do that? Why don't we do that here? We could. We could do that here. And, and I've actually, when we started the church, we very much had that in mind, to be honest, um, because I think it's important. I had a, I had a weird Christian upbringing. Um, it was very normal, and it was expected for every male to spend at least about 20 hours a week in the Word. And it was grilled into you. It's probably why our church was like 50 people. But it was, it was expected of you. And so what happened is that became something that it, it became a legalistic law. And it became this thing where everybody was kind of forced into that mold. And not everybody's for that mold. Is it good to study the Word? Sure, it's good to study the Word. But I tell you what, you know, I do my studying for this, but if, if I read about guys like William Tyndale or I read about these different, you know, uh, uh, pastors um, uh, from different eras and so forth, and they're like literally spending 12 hours a day studying, and, and I, it's like, that's not what I do. I spend like an hour, and then I spin around in my chair and walk around and pray, and then I kind of go back and think some, and then I'll study some more, and then I'll try to break it up with like an appointment or something. I just can't sit there for 12 hours. I would just not, I'd lose touch with whatever I was reading. So we could do something like that, but it would take a, a commitment and a desire from people to, to, to contribute that way. And I don't know if we do or don't have that. I'm not, I'm not like, this isn't some weird guilt trip for the men here. Like, well, we would do that, but you guys just don't want to do it. I'm not saying that. I have no idea if you do or if you don't. We're actually, we try to be very open. It's why we have a teaching class. It's, you know, the elders here have an open invitation the morning of to say, hey, I think I have a word from the Lord. And hey, go for it. Share it, man. I, I don't need to be up here. So it's, <clears throat> I think there's something else to keep in mind. And that is that, you know, first service is typically around, I don't, I don't count, so I don't know. But I, I would guess like between 45 and 65 people, depending on the Sunday. And this service is typically between, we do count this one because of the meal, it's typically between 110 to 130 people. Sometimes it gets a little, little bigger than that. So that would be very difficult in, a, in something this big to have this person stand up and that person say, could we do it? Sure, we could do it. You say, why don't we? I don't know why we don't. Because we just don't. But if you guys want to do that, we would gladly pray about that. And without being a jerk, it would just take some major stepping up. So if you guys want to do that, let me know. If you don't want to do that, you just want to keep doing this, then that's what we'll do. But uh, yeah, it's hard. I'll say this. It's hard to make a commitment to that, to be willing to be told to sit down, because I sure wasn't. It's, it's, it's much bigger than just, I'm going to prepare for 10 minutes. It's a big responsibility. Or I'm going to prepare for 20 or something like that. But uh, I wish I had a better answer for why we do it like we do it. It's just become tradition in our society of, of why we do this. But we would love um, more folks to be willing. What we do have is we have small groups. And so what I would say is the, 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 the tongues, the prophecies, these type of things, because God's a God of order. I would say that those are probably, you know, you would look for a small group. And I, I think we have five or six small groups in the church where, where maybe you might find a, a more um, open venue like that. You know, if, you're, if people want that, we'll give you a key and you can have a Sunday night, you know, type of thing here. 
we have grief share Sunday night, but you could start something Sundays at 7. And you could have a time to wait on the Lord and, and, and wait on tongues and interpreters and that type of thing. We, we'd be glad to do it. So a lot of this, right or wrong, things are just the way they are because we started a church. And we just tried to do the best that we could. That's why we have the Christmas lights, because they're awesome. So here comes the, the fun part. Women should remain silent in the churches. God bless you guys. <laughs> I want to be very careful here. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. What does that mean? Right? Because this has been of long dispute and it's been used wrongly and it's been used correctly. It's been interpreted weirdly and oppressively and it's been interpreted in better ways. It's been people try to remove it, right? People try to deal with this in all sorts of different ways. You know, um, we, we can try to take it out, which a lot of people have done. Um, I don't know if you know this, but there's about 0.05, so 0.05% of the English Bibles that's in dispute, meaning we don't know if it was there or if it wasn't there. You might turn to, for example, the end of the, blue, the, the, the book of uh, Mark, and starting at about, I think it's verse 11, you'll see brackets. And that's because about... 50% of some of the, the um, manuscripts don't have that last portion, and some do. There's places in the Bible where things are, they say, well, in some manuscripts, this particular thing is found actually in this place. In some manuscripts, it's found in this place. You might notice in John chapter 8, the, the woman caught in adultery that's got brackets around it because it's only in about 50% of the actual Manuscripts that we have. And so they don't know if it was added later. They don't know what it's from. The important thing to remember about these things is we don't have to get scared. You know, we have a, uh, actually a book in the back written by a wonderful uh, scholar. Um, it's called Can We Still Believe the Bible? He covers all this kind of stuff. So we're not scared of it. We're not worried about it. Because that 0.05%, none of it's doctrinal. In other words, there's no place in the Bible where it was added on. And Mary was the fourth part of the Godhead. And they were like, yeah, we don't like that. We're going to leave it out. That, that's not in there. It's all stuff like the woman caught in adultery. It's all stuff like, go tell Peter that I'm risen. It's, it's, it's stuff that is really like, it probably happened. It's reasonable, but we don't, we don't know because it was added later. Does that make sense? So there's a few of those. Um, you know, in the King James Bible, there's about 9,000 like syntax errors. So... That's why we say that we believe the Bible is inerrant, no errors, in its original form. Because in its original form, its original letters, it was given by inspiration of God. So we don't worry about the Bible. We're not worried about the Bible. It's not like the Bible is somehow untrustworthy or doesn't say what God wanted to say. It's absolutely trustworthy. There's just certain things where you just go, wow, was that in there or not? But it's nothing that would be really challenging to the faith. All that to be said, when we're reading these things, translators do their best because they're translating from Koine Greek. So according to the church fathers, the vast majority of the letters, because we don't have any originals. It's not like the Vatican or the Smithsonian or the you know, Christian Museum of Greatness. There's no place where it's like, and here is Paul's letter. They're gone. What we have is copies of those, copies that were by these faithful individuals by people like you and I, they wanted to invest and preserve the letters. But it's, it's, wild, it's, it's, it's widely accepted, not wildly accepted, it's widely accepted that these, most of these letters, including the Gospels, were written in, in Koine or Koine Greek, depending on how you want to uh, pronounce that. So in this section here, we have all this context, right, that we've been talking about. And we have... The fact that these people, these translators, and every, every English translator or German or whatever, they have to do their best to take Koine Greek that is a much more 
uh, nuanced language than English is. I mean, see the four or five different words for love, right? We just would use the word love. Greek has four or five different words. Eros, agape, all, you know, these different, these stogi, you know, all these different, these different words. And so tr- English translators sit and pour over about 5,000 to 5,500 scraps of, of uh, manuscript. And some of those scraps are this big and have two sentences. And some of them are full scrolls, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, where you have an entire thing of Isaiah and stuff like that. And, and that's actually, as a side note, why the Dead Sea Scrolls are so important. Because they actually showed, they date back to some of the earliest manuscripts that we have. And they show that it hasn't changed. Does that make sense? So the, the farther you go back and the more that you have, you realize that. So in those 5,500 scraps of, of manuscript, there's, almost, there's, there's like literally that, that 0.05% of deviation. To put it in perspective, in perspective, we have about three ancient copies of what Plato said. And yet everybody's like, well, that's what he said. We have 5,500 of what the Bible says, and they're all congruent. Unless you get into the weird stuff like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which was clearly written about 300 years later. And those, those things are easy to prove. So anyway, when we read something like this, it's written to, as an answer to Chloe, right? So it's, this is written to Corinth as an answer to Chloe, something that Chloe was asking about. It was originally written in Greek, and as we've talked about before, in Koine Greek, the word for woman and the word for wife is the same word. And you know which one it is based on the context of the conversation or the context of your letter, right? Then on top of that, you have now to translate it into English. And translators labor, good translators labor very hard to not install their ideas of what it means. Does that make sense? And you can read certain translations sometimes and you'd be like, oh, that was definitely written by a Calvinist. And you can read other translations where you go, that was definitely translated by an Armenian. Because they, they kind of, they can, it, it, it's not far to slip to kind of add your take on it. Does that make sense? So because of that, you get kind of, what well, I wouldn't say vague, but you get translations like this where it's like, hey, women should just be quiet. And then if, it's, if that's utilized wrongly with no context, you get that oppressive terribleness that in this, I mean, you have to, uh, we have to acknowledge also, this is written to first century Middle Eastern culture. So if you follow back, like for example, you read the law, the law was crazy liberating to women. Sometimes when we read it, we can be like, well, I don't know about that. But you have to understand that the fact that women were given a right to divorce, that was revolutionary. When the, when the law, when the Levitical law was written, even think about this: when the apostles asked Jesus about divorce, and he says, "You should only get divorced for the most extreme of reasons." I'm paraphrasing. Do you remember what their response is? Then why would anybody get married? That's the apostles. That's the guys we're reading. Their early response to the, the, Jesus telling them they couldn't kick their wife to the curb was then why would I bother getting married? That should show us what the culture looked like and how revolutionary Jesus was to these people and his ideas. It was revolutionary. So these are all things that we keep in our understanding to to understand what is he saying here? So what is he not saying? Well, he he can't be saying that women don't contribute. Because we just looked at three different times where he says, hey, ladies, when you're praying and prophesying in church, in the ecclesia, right? Is there any dispute to that? We can reread it. Verse 39, therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophecy. Verse 31, you can all prophecy in turn. 11.5, when you pray in prophecy, ladies. So he cannot now be saying, actually, never mind, just close your mouths. That's, that doesn't make any sense. That, that's not what he's saying. So what is he saying? That's what we kind of have to guess at. 
You'll notice here the first one says women. But then in verse 35, because of the context, he says, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands. So we know from the context of what's being said here, this isn't necessarily, this isn't address, an address to single women per se. It, it could be, but it's an address to specific women with husbands. You see, you see why I'm saying that? I don't really, you know, necessarily want to open this all up to questions and have a big discussion, but if, if you don't see that, it's important, because otherwise you're going to go out of here with some weird ideas. So he's, he's speaking to, to, to married women. So single women say what you want, married women, no, I'm just, I'm, it's not that. <clears throat> but he's speaking to these, the, the, a specific incident. So in our context, what did he just get done talking about? Prophecy, right? And now he's telling this, this group of women, he says, if you have questions, you ask your husband at home. So from that, what can we deduce that was probably happening? There were probably women in the gathering where someone was sharing a prophecy, and they begin to publicly ask questions about it. And you might make the case, well, women should be able to do that. But where do you live? You live in first century Roman, which was much more liberal, but Roman and Middle Eastern culture. And, and we're not, I'm not upholding this idea, promoting this idea. I'm not going to joke about the idea. But you didn't do that if you were a woman in that culture. You didn't publicly question a man, and you certainly didn't publicly question your husband. If you go back to 1 Corinthians and the issue of the first Corinthians 11, the issue of the head covering, what was it? He says, "If you pray and prophesy with your head uncovered, what does he say? He says, "You dishonor who? Your head, to husband, your husband." So he says, "As a woman, if you're sharing in church and you do it without your head covered because of where they live and temple prostitution and different things in their area, you look like you're basically a prostitute." married to this guy, and you dishonor him. And so everybody looks at your husband and be like, dude, you married a prostitute. And so Paul says, please don't do that. Please, don't, don't, please cover your head so that you don't dishonor your husband and the liberty that you have to not wear a head covering because you're a Christian, you're free. You don't live under that law, so please do that. So now he's making another thing. And this is, this is my opinion, and you can throw this in the trash. One of the things that Paul relates here, and this is really odd, he says... He says there in the end of verse 35, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak at church. Uh, where does he say it? He says it's according to the law. Uh, where'd it go? Oh, and the, verse, the end of verse 34, must be in submission as the law says. Well, we know from Ephesians the other place that women are not to be in submission to random men. Women are in submission. The idea is to, to essentially allow authority to their husbands as spiritual leaders, and that might be scary too, and we can talk about that another day. Because, it, yeah. You say, why do you feel the need to explain this every time we talk about something like this? Because where we live. And because you have a lot of people, I think, that, that want to, I want to be careful here, but there's old attitudes of female oppression, and there's new attitudes of female domination, and either are right. It's equality, and it's, it's role, it's gender role. And I know our society hates gender role, rages against gender role, but God says there are roles given to genders, not superiority, superiority, inferiority roles, but literally physiological. And so he says something interesting. He says, as the law says. Well, if you and I were to go back and read all of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, not one place in those, in those laws will it ever say that a woman should be silent. It's not in there. It's not in the Levitical law. But the Torah is often referred to as the law. So it was normal for Jews, you know, Jesus put it this way, the law and the prophets. It's, it's normal for Jews to refer to as the first five books, including Genesis and Exodus, Exodus, which are narratives, right? Other than the Ten Commandments there in Exodus, they're narratives. But they're still lumped into these writings that are called the law. So we have to kind of guess, in a sense, what is Paul talking about in the law where he says this is the reason why men and women operate this way. And it, I, would, I would put forward to you, and this is, again, this is just a thought-out hypothesis. In Genesis chapter 3, 
And verse 16, when, when God is saying, as a result of sin, this is what's going to happen to you, right? And so he says that to dudes, uh, you're going to have a rough time farming. I'm obviously paraphrasing. You're going to have a rough time farming, and it, you're gonna, it's going to be by the sweat of your brow. You're going to get almost nothing. Um, it's just going to generally suck for you, right? And then to ladies, he says, you're going to have difficulty in childbirth. And my opinion, again, you're like, this is a lot of opinions. It's because it's all we have. And you can have your own opinion, and I'll still love you. But the, the, in, in, uh, uh, to women, he says, I, I don't think it's punitive. Like, he's like, oh, yeah, eat that fruit. Tough labor for you. I think he's, what he's saying is, <laughs> that's how we think, right? I think what he's saying is, you have this incredible world, and you systemically, universally destroyed it when you rebelled against me. That's what I think the point is. And he says, because of this, death has come in, and now childbirth is going to be incredibly painful. And then he makes a really weird statement on the, on, the, on, the, on the outside. He says, your desire will be to your husband, but your husband will reign over you. And, you, and it sounds like, in the English, it sounds like he's saying, you're just going to really want your husband, which every husband's like, amen, right? But it's, it's, <laughs> but it's, it's not what it means. It's not what it means. It means you will desire to master him. Your desire, because of your fallen nature in women, he says, your desire will be to master your husband. And he says, and, and part of the curse is, and your, your husband's fallen nation, nature will be to reign over you. So this is a reference, I would say, all the way back to original sin, where he says, because of this, women will desire to master and control their husbands. You know what the weird thing about when you see that dynamic going on? Everyone's miserable, including the, the, the woman who's trying to master and the man who's trying to like fend it off or, or be aggressive. If you try to master a man, depending on their general personality, there are typically two outcomes, right? One outcome, if you have an alpha type male or a type A personality, will be aggression. Mastering will be met with aggression. And, you, and that man will say, you won't dominate me. This will not happen. And that can escalate depending to bad things, depending on what gets done and said or whatever. And I'm not, I'm not endorsing that. I'm not like, yeah, alpha male, rah, rah. I'm just saying that that's, that's, how people will, that's how men will respond. A type B personality male will typically respond in retraction, meaning if you try to master him, he will, and I'm not advocating for this, I'm just talking about it, he will retract and he will compartmentalize and he'll put you in the I don't want to deal with you box. And he'll be like, that's cool. You do what you got to do. I'll be watching the Seahawks and I'll have a beer. Right? You ever felt that way when, when we were in a marriage? The same thing, right? And this, this actually is something that Paul does talk about in Ephesians 5. Because Paul's conclusion for the relationship and marriage between a man and a woman, he says a man must, and he uses the emphatic, he must, a man must see to it that he loves his wife. But it's not agape. It's a different word. It's to cherish. It literally means to kiss or to worship. Not literally in like a weird idolatry type of way. But, but he says a man, if, if, if a man is going to operate in the way that God has called him to operate in a marriage, he must cherish his wife meaning take care of her, observe her. Peter puts it this way. He says, dwell with your wife according to knowledge. Literally, study her and understand her so that you can relate to her well. And then he says to women, he says, a, a woman must see to it that she respects her husband. Because in general, women receive love, feel appreciated and loved when they are cherished. Men, in general, receive and appreciate love as respect. And so when you come to something like this, which seems to be what, the, what Paul seems to be saying is, wives, if your husband's sharing a prophecy or someone else is sharing a prophecy, do not emasculate them by asking questions out loud in the middle of the gathering. Go, well, I don't know about that. Jesus put it this way, a prophet is only despised in his own land. And so if your husband were to stand up and share a prophecy, you'd be like, well, that's not what you said last night. That's not what you were saying on the way to church, right? Oh, Jesus turned water into wine, did he? You know, right? Because if you do that, ladies, bad, thing will, the bad things will ensue from your man. Should your man respond in a proper way? Yeah, he should. But should and do are often far apart. So this fits right into with this idea that what is this whole thing about? 
It's doing our best to make it the easiest for everybody around us to find Jesus. He's not saying, women, you're inferior. So it's my opinion, and you can disagree with it. I mean that, I mean that sincerely when I say it. These things are not for the weakness of women. It's for the weakness of men. It's because pride is the peculiar sin of Satan and men. And it's the sin of young men. I think Paul is just simply writing to these ladies and he's saying, look, because of the fall, it's shame. why is he saying it's shameful for them to speak? It's not because what they're saying is wrong. It's not that he's saying what you're saying is weak. It's not what you're saying is stupid. No, it's shameful because you're dishonoring your head. And that is going to cause discord in the body. It's going to cause discord in, in the marriage. And so he says, instead of just vocalizing your questions and what's going on, go home and ask your husband, what the heck was that? <laughs> right? You might want to phrase it a little differently. <laughs> go home and ask him. So there's still the invitation there. There's still the right to like, like well, I don't understand that. Or even to say like, hey, I appreciated what you said, but you know, you're telling people that we ought to be holy, and yet, you know, last night, you know, you hit the old wine pretty hard, and uh, you know, it's rough on the family when you do that. So you have the right. He's not saying keep your mouth shut and just take it. He's saying it's not to be in the middle of church when the body gets together. And when men and women operate in the roles that, we've, that we have physiologically, the roles that we have from the fall, the roles just because of the way things are, that's where you see this incredible picture of Christ in the church. And so I'm not saying it's always easy. I'm not saying it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's clearly not ideal because that's not what happened pre-fall, but it's where we're at today. So each of us has an opportunity to decide to love one another, and in this way, specifically, to not just call out publicly in these things, but to, to, to nurture and to care for one another. All right? Peter wrote it this way in chapter 4, verse six, is it 16 or 10. He says, love covers a multitude of sins, which isn't that what we're all looking for, to have sin covered, to not be exposed, but to be able to be comfortable, to be able to be trusting and, and, and to walk with one another. I think that's what we're all looking for. And this, this is just a practical way. Real quick before we, we finish. And he gets really stern here. Verse 36, he says, Or did the word of God originate with you? You're like, that's kind of rough. Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. That's pretty wild. So this isn't just the conclusion to that one thought about women. This is the conclusion to his whole thought about tongues and prophecy and how we operate in church. And he comes along and he says, if someone says to you, well, hey, I'm a prophet and we're doing it differently. He says, you let them know that you ignore them. They're to be ignored. You say, no, we're not. We're not going to do it differently. So what does that mean if you've been to a gathering where there's just constant just prayer and, and just tongues all the time and, and all that? It means that they're doing it wrong, which seems really pompous. Let me qualify that. It doesn't mean it's not blessed. God is incredibly merciful. And he has blessed the church in all of its weirdness and brokenness and doing, thing wrong, doing things wrong since day two. And he has been so good to us. So we might go to a gathering and we might go, this doesn't really line up with 1 Corinthians 14. And you might decide, you know, I don't think I want to be a part of that. Or you might decide, hey, maybe this is what God called me to. One of the most admirable women in the Bible to me, honestly, is Chloe. She's mentioned one time. But what, she, what did she do? She fought for her church. She didn't just say, well, I'm out. Screw these Corinthians. I'm moving to Galatia. Right? <laughs> She writes and says, Paul, we're jacked. We don't know what we're going to do. This is just crazy here. We need help. That's courage. That's, it's courage, and, and dare I say, at the risk of offense, in gender roles. 
Because I'll tell you what, if Chloe tries to come to all these people that are exercising things this way, a bunch of dudes that are oppressive and just doing whatever they want, and she goes, well, listen here, guys, you guys can't do it. They're just going to oust her. And so she humbles herself and writes to someone that she thinks can help. And the boldness in that, I mean, he literally publicly tells them, yeah, Chloe told on you. I got a letter from Chloe, and let me tell you something. It is on, right? I mean, that's, that's what he does. See, there's, there's boldness there. There's assertiveness there. There's love there, right? She's, what a woman of faith. And by her humbling herself in front of a bunch of dudes who are doing it wrong, how many millions have been edified and blessed by this response? And how many thousands at the church at Corinth got a church where there was correction and growth and and life? So go get them, ladies. Get after it. Seek the Lord. Dudes, too, don't be lazy. You've You've been called by God to be a spiritual leader. Not a spiritual dominator, but a spiritual leader. Be a leader. Lead in the word. It doesn't mean you sit your family down and go, now it is devotional time. That's weird. <laughs> right? That's weird. But when, if you look at the law, what does he say? He says, he says, put it on your doorpost. Right? Talk of it at dinner time. But we can't share as men or women out of what we don't have. Right? He told us that the Holy Spirit brings some remembrance. This is something that's very important. He doesn't, Jesus didn't tell us the Holy Spirit will just give you stuff. That may happen. But the promise is he will bring to remembrance what we need. So we need to be those that are intaking it and then the, so the Spirit can, can, can loose it right? as we, we minister to each other. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be eager to prophecy and do not forbid the speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting in an orderly way. Amen? So we have a, a tasty meal. I think it's some lasagna and that ridiculous bread that Holly always makes. So go easy on the bread the first time through because we all want some. I know you guys. I know what happens. Hopefully you can stay with us. Um, I know we've gone long. One last thing. God has great things for each of you. Legitimately. He really does. And you have the opportunity in every single person you meet to help them. Not maybe counseling and gospel, whatever, but you can love them, right? And then that love may open up to an opportunity for the gospel, and that might open up to salvation. But all of us have really a gifting and a duty, and let's not neglect it. You know, Paul has to write to Timothy. Timothy's a young pastor, right? He's the big Timothy. This guy's like, dude got circumcised at like 20 years old for crying out loud so that the Jews would accept him. That's an impressive sacrifice in first century Rome. That's not like rolling out to a surgeon. That's like, get the flint out and let's do this. <laughs> Timothy. And he says to Timothy, stoke the gift that's inside of you. So we all need encouragement. We all need the, the encouragement to, to not neglect the gift that God has given us. And my encouragement would be, don't neglect it and know if you walk in it, it'll be the best times of your life. Period. Full stop. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great grace and your great wisdom and your understanding. Lord, we don't know all these things mean, but we know we want to honor you and we want to bless each other. So we pray that if there's anything that should be different in our church, Lord, that you would reveal that to us and we'd be willing to walk in that way. If things are good the way they are, then we'll walk in that way. But, Lord, we just want to honor you, and we pray that you would continue to speak and to guide and to do great things in our church. We pray you bring visitors, there be salvation, and, uh, Lord, that it would just be more and more sweet fellowship together. Thanks for food and providing. Thanks that we get to eat again today. Lord, you're very good to us. We deserve none of it. We appreciate you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys.